morning and welcome to Sunday Worship at Calvary Baptist Church. Hi, I'm Paul Thompson, pastor. So glad that you've joined us. Right now we're in a series from the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, we see the final and ultimate revelation of God to us in the person of Jesus Christ, His Son. Over these next several weeks together, we'll be looking at the beauty, the majesty, and the worth of Jesus. I pray that as you join us, God reveal Himself to you, and as He does, you'd be inspired to, to love Him and to trust Him, to obey Him, to follow Him with the rest of your life. Love to invite you to come worship with us in person, 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We gather at 901 Montezuma Avenue. Again, we'd love to have you. Meanwhile, as you're listening today, I pray that God would speak to you. I pray that you'd be encouraged or challenged or convicted, or that God would move your heart in some way towards Him. If you've got a need you'd like to share with us, a prayer request, or maybe a decision that you're making or you would like to make, or just that you'd like to talk with a pastor or an elder, please contact us. You can text us or call 334-708-0513. You can also email us at info at calvarydothan.com. We'd love to hear from you. I pray that God speaks to you today and that you have a fresh encounter with Jesus Christ. During the month of September, two of the most significant high holy days for Jewish people took place. You might have some friends, some relatives. You may have read of some of these celebrations taking place around you. Rosh Hashanah, or the Jewish New Year, the first of the two high holy days mentioned in Leviticus, both chapters 23 and chapter 16. Then, following Rosh Hashanah, which took place at the beginning of the month, there are 10 days of awe preparing people for Yom Kippur. Uh, Yom Kippur is the Jewish Day of Atonement. When you think of Rosh Hashanah, it literally means the head of the year. The idea of Rosh Hashanah is a new start, a fresh beginning for Jewish people, a time where they can do some introspection, some evaluation, make some amends, look at some changes they want to make for the new year. Traditionally, in the book of Leviticus, it was known as the Memorial of Blowing of the Trumpets, and again, it leads up to that great event, which Hebrews has been hovering all around for the last several weeks in our message series. We've seen all these allusions to the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the most solemn day in the Jewish calendar. The Bible describes it as a day of affliction. It's the day where sins are atoned for. In the Old Testament context, this is what took place during Yom Kippur. And as I describe this to you, think of the scenery that we've seen in Hebrew so far. The descriptions of the high priest then, in comparison to Jesus, our great high priest. In the ancient world, the high priest would wake up early. He would put on his priestly garments specific for that day. He would sacrifice a bull first for himself because, like every other human being, he's sinful. He's not Jesus. He is not the perfect sacrifice or the perfect sacrifice giver. He's a man like us. He would sacrifice a bull for himself and his family. He then cast lots over two goats. He would choose one for the Lord and designate the other as a scapegoat, which would be sent out into the wilderness carrying the sins of the people away. On this day, particular day, Day of Atonement, is the only day that the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place in the tabernacle or temple. He'd offer incense, he'd sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and then by, before concluding the sacrifice, he would take the bull of the sacrifice, I mean the blood of the sacrifice first goat, place it on the second goat, and again, send that goat out into the wilderness, symbolically removing sin. 
Now, for a modern Jewish person who is not offering temple sacrifices, not sacrificing goats, there is no temple where those are being done. There is no tabernacle anymore. Yom Kippur looks more like this, fasting from food and drink, uh, prayers offered up typically in a synagogue or in the temple, depending upon your denomination of Judaism. And then during the 10 days of all leading up to Yom Kippur, again, Jewish people would be looking at how to make amends, how to change things up. What do I, what do I need to fix? Who do I need to repair or restore relationships with? What do I need to do to make my life a little bit better? Um, how do I start this new year differently than this, during this previous year? And there's one interesting observation, um, which you may or may not be familiar with, but I want to tell you about it today just as a point of illustration. It's something that Jewish people began to do around the 13th century is when this tradition emerged, and it's very commonplace today, and it's called Tashlik. Tashlik typically takes place on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, unless Rosh Hashanah begins on the Sabbath day, in which case this would take place on the second day. And what Tashlik looks like, something it looks something like this simply, is that Jewish people will gather together, typically around a river, uh, some stream of water. Um, they prefer it to be a place where there are actually fish, not tepid water, but a place where there's moving water and living things. And they would gather around that stream, and they would say prayers, uh, recite scripture, and then typically they would cast bread into the water, symbolically casting off their sin, and the water would then carry that sin away. As they're doing this, um, the typical observation of Tashlik would involve the reading of a scripture, Micah chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And so this annual observation of casting off sins symbolically into the waters they're being carried off, has become a rather prominent Jewish tradition. Now, it's kind of interesting when you read back to the history of Tashlik, as it began, it began without the approval of the rabbis of the 13th century. They feared that people would substitute the act of Tashlik, this symbolic act of casting away sins, for teshuva, which is repentance. In other words, they feared that real repentance, whereby people abandoned sin, would not take place, and people would only do this symbolically. It's kind of interesting, I was studying this this week, and I read one site, how to do Toshlik with your family, and how to, how to observe this with your family. And it says this, and I quote, like many of the other symbols and rituals of these holidays, many people participate in this ritual without taking the metaphor literally. Often the person leading Toshlik will offer some words of hope and encouragement to everyone to continue doing the work of teshuva, of moral self-examination, of offering apologies when appropriate, of seeking to improve yourself when moving forward. If the weather's good, this is a really fun ritual for young children. And it's a great opportunity for interfaith families to get together to mingle with other families, with kids in the community. And I thought about that. We don't take it seriously. Uh, what we're doing is symbolic. Its effects are at best superficial. You know, this is just something we do. We feel better about ourselves in so doing it. We look inward a little bit. We look outward some degree. And we just say, hey, let's be better people. Now, you and I would look at that and we say, man, that is not, that's not biblical repentance. That is not the way the Bible describes turning away from our sins and turning away to God. But before we get too critical for modern, superficial Jewish expressions of, of faith and tradition, let's examine ourselves for a moment. Is our approach to God and our own sin and how we repent or confess that sin not similar to that 
Are we not often guilty of handling this very superficially? You know, God, just forgive my sins. Forgive me for the things I've done wrong this week. Even before we take Lord's Supper today, we're commanded by God to examine ourselves. A man ought to examine himself, the Bible says, before he eats or drinks. Why? Because sin is so serious to a holy God. But yet we treat it superficially or even symbolically. Let's just do this symbolically. We feel better at ourselves for taking it. We feel a little closer to God in receiving it. We know there's a little bit of self-introspection, inspection involved, but we don't go too far with it. It's, it's sort of superficial. But the Bible says this, justification, what you heard about today, what's offered to us by Christ, what was paid for by the blood of Christ, that's available to us conditioned upon real repentance. Justification is not the blanket promise of God for everyone who ever lives. When you read a passage like Micah chapter 7, Colossians chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, the vast majority of the book of Romans, we should not, we would not rightly interpret God's offer of forgiveness to be for everyone, regardless of their response to God, regardless of their belief in God, regardless of repentance. Repentance is what leads to justification. So as I was doing a little bit more homework and studying on this subject, because I thought it was so interesting to me, and Tashlik, and Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur, and what people are doing today, I found this, the process of repentance. One of the great Jewish theologians, philosophers, one of the most influential, even though he lived in the uh, 12th century, Maimonides, perhaps the most influential Jewish scholar of all time, he authored something that was called, in fact, the Second Torah. Maimonides said something like this, he said, the only books one needs to read in order to understand God are the Torah first. That's the first five books, what we would call the Pentateuch. Read this Old Testament Torah, and then read the second Torah, and you'll understand all that you need to know of God, he said. But here's what he wrote way back then, centuries ago. He said, real repentance, yeshuva, teshuva, includes these three stages. Regret, confession, and then a vow to God to not repeat the misdeed or sin. He said the truly repentant, consider this for a moment, the truly repentant is one who finds himself with the opportunity to commit the same sin again, and yet he does not. Truly repentant, the opportunity to commit the same sin again, but yet he does not. In more modern times than someone in our school of thought, the great Reformed theologian Louis Burkhoff wrote in his systematic theology. Repentance, he says, has intellectual, emotional, volitional ramifications. He said the intellectual element of repentance is this. He says it's a change of view. It's a recognition of sin as involving my guilt personally, my own defilement, my own helplessness, a change of view. He said the emotional element is a change of feeling. It manifests itself in sorrow for sin because I've committed sin against a holy God. He said the volitional element is a change of purpose. It's an inward turning away from sin and a disposition to seek God's cleansing. Think of those elements for a moment. Any one of those three removed from the equation makes repentance insufficient. A change of view, how I see sin, a change of feeling. What is my emotional response to the sin of my life? And a change of purpose, a change of direction, how will I live from this point forward? I share all that to say this with you as a way of introduction. I'm praying for a genuine movement of repentance among us that brings us real freedom. 
that sets us free from the vicious, repetitive cycles of sin, that sets us free from the self-destructive patterns of sin, that sets us free from the way we perceive ourselves and the limits we place on ourselves in our usefulness to God, our own sense of ability to be different than we are, that gives us the real freedom to know and enjoy God, to be what God wants us to be, to enjoy what God wants to give us, to be the sort of people God's created us to be together for real repentance to take place that's not superficial, that's deep and meaningful. It's not short-lived but results in real change and certainly is not symbolic that we just gather together Sunday after Sunday and as you've seen, we're putting great emphasis this month on receiving Lord's Supper together It's not something we simply go through the motions of. But my prayer is that we would really encounter the power of forgiveness and to know what it is to walk in justification. I want you to pray with me this morning before we look at our text from Hebrews chapter 9. Father God, move our hearts today and our minds today. For the mind that is confused, I pray you would bring clarity. For the heart that is hardened, I pray you would soften it to your will and to your words. For those who no longer see themselves rightly because of the deceptive power of sin, pull back its blinding effect. Enlighten us. Show us what you see. Show us ourselves in your eyes. Show us yourself so we may see you rightly. And Father, give us hope. Father, if you were not a God of mercy, if you were not a God of patience, if you were not a God of loving kindness, if you did not offer us grace, then none could stand in your presence. You would not receive our worship. You would not hear our prayers. You would not welcome us into eternity to enjoy you and all the good things you offer forever. Those would not be possible apart from your grace and mercy. But your grace and mercy eludes those who do not repent. It is outside of the reach of those too proud, those too arrogant, Or those too defeated, too blinded, too deceived by the enemy to think that repentance is even offered to them. And Father, it's not just about eternity for which I pray today. I pray for today. I pray for the effects today of being able to walk in freedom from sin and in right fellowship with you. And begin to shake off the shackles of the old and embrace the new. And be the people you made us to be. Be the person I'm supposed to be and the people we each are supposed to be. Because we're free from sin. So, Father, speak to us through your word today so that we hear it, show us so we see it, move us so we feel it, and cause us to want what you want, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23 through 28. You can read along with me, it'll also be on the screen behind me. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting 
him. Let's talk about this text for a moment and the context of it. Um, If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you probably will see the natural bridges and how one statement leads to the next and one theme leads to the next. And it's one ongoing topic, the revelation of the greatness of Christ and what he's done for us. And so that we understand this and appreciate this and worship because of it, the theme is just developed and redeveloped and re-expressed in this passage. So it starts with this, thus it was necessary. Let's look at the context. The context is this comparison. The comparison is between what you can see and touch and feel in the earthly realm, that's the tabernacle, and what you can't see yet but one day you will experience, and that's heaven. Now the tabernacle is still important for us as Christians today. And you've heard me say this before, but let me reiterate for a moment. When you and I, as New Testament believers, Gentile believers by and large, who come to faith in Christ, we say, what need have we of the Old Testament? What need have we of the Old Testament shapes and forms and symbols? Much. The tabernacle is a picture of heaven. It's a picture of how one encounters God. It's a picture of where God rules from, the temple that is God, and it's a picture of how one ever gets into God's presence. And so the tabernacle given to Moses, not designed by Moses, but delivered to Moses by God, was an exact copy, the Bible says, of something that's in heaven. So that alone ought to pick your curiosity as a modern-day Christian. I want to know more about this tabernacle. I want to know more about the symbolism there. I want to know more about the layout, its meanings, its implications, the lessons that it teaches. So here's the picture. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was a copy of what's in heaven. It was necessary for it to be that. Why? What's it a copy of? God's presence is there. It's in that tabernacle that God promised that he would dwell with. Tabernacle means to dwell with. He promised the Israelites, I will dwell with you here. I will go with you. I will be a pillar of fire. I will be a cloud. I will be that which will travel with you. I will be a reminder that I haven't left you. I'm ever present with you. God's holy presence is there. Now, what do we know about God's holy presence? Well, we know this. We know God is absolutely holy. He has no capacity to tolerate sin. In him is no darkness at all, nor capacity to tolerate our darkness, our sin. Our sinfulness precludes us from being in his presence. That makes sense, right? His holiness, our absolute lack of holiness. His perfection, our sinfulness. That creates a barrier that's not just symbolic. That's real. Sin in the presence of a holy God must be consumed and destroyed. And so God's holy presence is there. So what does God do in order to mediate or to bridge who he is and what he is and who we are and what we are? Well, he set up and gave this system to Moses. And he designed a temple worship system or a tabernacle worship system, which precluded temple, which required a high priest, a mediator. And so the high priest can enter, and only once per year, what we would call Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, he can enter once per year on behalf of sinful men. How could he enter in? Why was he allowed in? Because the purification made necessary as a result of our sin was already done. The high priest comes in. He's made a sacrifice, as I read before. He made a sacrifice for himself and his family. He brings a sacrifice for the people. And so now he is able to enter God's presence. In this action, now men are able to worship a holy God. Does that make sense? So the high priest, he goes in as the representative of the people. He carries a sacrifice for himself. He carries a sacrifice for them. And in this sense, there is a mediation that takes place. There's a bridge. Holy God in that holiest of holy places in the tabernacle, shielded from people, shielded from their presence. God's presence dwells. And the only way we'll access that is if purification for sins are made via a sacrifice. 
Now, the problem with that sacrifice, as we developed over the last several weeks, is this. One, it has to be repeated because sins continue to be repeated. Two, we know this. It doesn't change the hearts of people. People remain captive to their sins. They remain guilty in their sins. But a principle here is laid down that affects even what we did today in Lord's Supper. It's found in verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We talked about last week why the Bible is such a bloody book. And it's because the world is such a sinful world. And the power of sin is great. The pain of sin is great. The punishment for sin is also great. And it's all wrapped up in that picture of blood. But what about Jesus? The Bible is making it clear that what happened in the Old Testament was important. It was valuable. But it was a foreshadowing of. A foreshadowing of something better. Something far better. Because Jesus, for us, isn't simply a high priest who goes into a tent or a temple. Jesus, for us, goes into heaven itself on our behalf. Jesus, our great high priest, goes before the presence of God in heaven, the eternal place of God. He goes in God's presence on our behalf, and he offers a sacrifice also. But he doesn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself first, because he's sinless. The sacrifice that he brings is for us. So he goes in one time. And the sacrifice he gives is himself, the one sinless and perfect sacrifice that can take away the sins of the world, is offered up. The only way that people can be forgiven, through the sacrifice of Christ, he does. He offers it up one time for ourselves. By his action, and only by his action, can our sins be, according to the Bible, put away. Put away. And then, because those sins have been put away, We get to enjoy God forever. We get to enjoy God forever. Because the Bible now makes us promises that those sins will not be remembered against us. That those sins will be buried in the depths of the sea. That those sins will be separated from us as far as east is from the west. They're put away. When I was reading about Rosh Hashanah, Tashlik, Yom Kippur this week, the great weight of tragedy settled on me. That without Jesus, without Jesus doing this, without Jesus putting our sins away, that they're still present. You can cast bread into the water, or as more modern groups are doing because it's um, politically incorrect to put bread in the streams, rocks or peas or duck food. You can't make this stuff up. Even Jewish religious groups are becoming woke. You can do all these symbolic things and still be dead in your trespasses and sins. Only Christ can put away sin. And so that's the difference. And so the author of Hebrews, by the Holy Spirit, is saying, listen, you have these powerful symbols. And those symbols are meaningful as they point you to greater realities. But here's the reality you have to embrace. Only Jesus has the ability to put away your sins. If he doesn't put away your sins, your sins still remain. And if your sins still remain, you are still cut off from God. And if you're still cut off from God, you're still subject to God's judgment. And that judgment is forever and ever. That's the context. As I was thinking about that picture of Toshlik and how people handle their sins, it got me thinking about what are you and I, what are people typically doing with their sins? What, What do we do with them? I mean, we can't escape the reality of sin. I I really, to this point in my life, and I'm not saying this person doesn't exist, but I I haven't met the person that denies personal sin. 
at least on some level, by some definition. I mean, they'll acknowledge something like this. Hey, nobody's perfect. Yeah, sure, everybody messes up every now and then. Or I've made a few mistakes. I'll grant you that. Even if we minimize it, even if we redefine it, there are precious few people that will deny that, well, sin is real. And even if we struggle with accepting it about ourselves, we have no problem seeing it in other people. I mean, if you find somebody that says, hey, I, don't, I don't know that I'm really sinful. I mean, I may have made a mistake here or there. Would you, would you agree with this statement? There's evil in the world? Things aren't as they ought to be? I haven't met anyone who would deny that. So what's the origin of that evil? Is, is evil's origin not sin? Is it not our choices? Is it not our attitudes? Is it not our beliefs? Is it not our thoughts? Is it not our desires lived out? Yeah, so we see sin in the world. But what do we tend to do with our sin personally? Not philosophically. You know, this isn't just an intellectual exercise. What do you and I tend to do with the sin that's in my life, the sin in my life right here, right now, today, before God? What do we do with it? We tend to deny it. We deny it. And denial takes place on a lot of different levels. Sometimes denial is flat out. We may not state it this way, but our beliefs belie this conviction about us. I disagree with God that this, fill in the blank, is sin. I disagree that that's a sin. I have people, just, people doing that all the time today, Christians doing that all the time today. Though the Bible says this, I believe this, and considering myself to be a, a greater theologian than God, I'm going to go with me. I disagree. Some are in flat-out denial about that. We see that today uh, running amok when it comes to sexual sin. I don't see how that's a sin. I disagree with that. Marital sin. I disagree with that. And the list goes on and on. We just simply deny it. But for most of us, at least church-going most of us, our level of denial is somewhat downstream from that. It's not denial that it's a sin. It's really a denial about the seriousness of sin. I mean, I know I do it, but it's not really that big of, of a deal, is it? We're denying its seriousness, its impact. Or we deny its power. Right? You know, I, I know this is wrong, but I could, stop, I could stop this anytime. And so we're in denial. We're in denial about the effects of sin, the progressive nature of sin. That sin is a slave master. It's a, it's a slave to no one. No one controls sin. No one dominates their own sin. No one masters it. No one's got it under control. No one's got it hemmed in. We're always being mastered by it. We deny it. Sometimes we defend it. We defend it by justifying it, right? We defend it by, listen, I can't be the only one, right? Hey, everybody's doing this. Or we defend it by excusing it. Listen, I know it's not right, but I would not have done this if it weren't for. If that person had not done this to me, I would not have done this. I would not have responded this way. If things weren't like they are, I wouldn't have, and so we'll... We'll defend it. And what we don't realize this whole time in this process is sin is defeating us. We're allowing it to defeat us. As we've talked about some over the last several months, sin has an aim. It has an end game in mind. And it goes far beyond just our entertainment, our diversions, way past what we think pleasure or satisfaction is. James 1.15 says, sin, when it's fully grown, 
brings forth death. So that sin that seems rather innocuous, powerless, harmless, even enjoyable, well, it's still in its infant stages. You still got toddler sin. You're still toying with it, playing with it. Maybe you've got juvenile sin. You're out in the backyard tossing the ball around with it. But one day it's going to be full-grown sin. And full-grown sin is a killer. It's a destroyer of life, families, marriages, people. You see, when we don't realize it, sin is killing us. We're dying from it. We're dying from it. And one of the great revelations that any of us could, could reach when it comes to the battle for holiness every single day is this. Every time you and I make a choice for holiness, every time there's a temptation and we choose to do what's right and good, we're making a life-giving choice. We're making a choice that literally brings life into us. And every time by the same conclusion, when we choose to sin, when we choose to give in to those desires that we know are wrong, when we continue to repeat the things we said we wouldn't do, when we say we've been sorry for it, we've asked God to forgive us, but we're not truly penitent, Because we do the same sin when given that same opportunity again. We're choosing death. And our hearts are getting a little harder. Our minds a little bit more darkened. Our relationship with God more strained and more disconnected. Our relationship with the body of Christ more strained and disconnected. And we're dying from it. What does Jesus do with our sin? What does the Bible say Jesus does with our sin? And again, I I want you to include this if you're a note taker or at least a mental note taker. What Jesus does with our sin is entirely predicated on genuine repentance. It's not promised for those who don't repent. Repentance is what unlocks justification. Repentance is what enables forgiveness. Repentance is what sets us free. Because in repentance, God responds. He responds to the faithful act of of turning from sin and turning to him, and rewards us, rewards us with forgiveness, justification, and right relationship, both here and and forever. What does Jesus do with our sin if we repent? Well, the first thing Jesus does with our sin is he faces it. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't act like it's not there. He doesn't act like it's not a problem. He recognizes it is the problem. Jesus came into this world, and by his own statement of purpose, he came into this world to save sinners. Jesus did a lot of good while he was in this world. He set a perfect moral example. He taught the most profound life lessons. He inspired with the miraculous. He started a movement that changed the world. But the primary work of Jesus in this world was to destroy the works of the devil, namely sin, and to set us free from it so that we could be forgiven of it, so that we could be in right relationship restored to our creator, to our king, to our judge, to our father, God. He faced sin. That's why he faced temptation. That's why he faced the enemy. That's why he faced death and a cross. He faced it, and he defeated it. In defeating sin, Jesus forgives us. Now, I always want to put an asterisk beside the word forgiven because that is such a tough concept for us today. Because in the simplest of terms, we're not God. And so we struggle with forgiveness like God forgives. We really do. We honestly do. Um, 
I hear so many different messages and explanations and read so many different devotionals and texts and things. It can make your head spin studying forgiveness. And here's why I decided, maybe this is a cynical me, deciding this. Too many of us, when we study this and we study it and we study it and we study it, we finally settle on a notion of it or a definition of it that just suits us. But forgiveness ultimately means this. It means he has put it away. It means there is no more penalty to be paid. It means the debt is done. It means when you stand before God, you don't owe him anything anymore. There's nothing for him to extract from you in payment for your sins against him. And in that sense, forgiveness is not necessarily emotional. Forgiveness is the canceling of a debt. Think about the call of God in your life and my life to forgive people. If you're waiting for this emotion to, to come over you, where you no longer feel offended or hurt or wounded or angry or upset in order to carry out the act of offense, I mean the act of forgiveness, and you may not ever get there. If you're waiting to feet for feelings to lead the way, they probably won't. Forgiveness ultimately is this. I cancel the debt you have against me. I'm not looking for repayment. I'm not looking for retribution. I'm not looking for you to make it up to me or make it right. It's done. It's over. I've let it go. I've cut that chain of offense of you against me. It's paid. Now, in Jesus' terms, he didn't simply cancel it by letting it go. He canceled it by paying it. So when Jesus suffered on the cross, he suffered as if he were the great sinner rather than you and me. In fact, he suffered as if he were the most guilty sinner that had ever lived. He suffered as the worst of the worst. So every sort of sin, grotesque and heinous, unthinkable, unspeakable, Jesus paid the penalty for on the cross, and he forgives it. He forgives it. It's paid for. And that's the good news, by the way. You know, the simple truth, really, today, I'm using a lot of words to say something simple. What we, what we recognize in receiving bread and cup today in the Lord's Supper is this. You and I, if we're forgiven, we get to stand before God one day without fear. Do you think about that sometimes? To know that the one who knows everything about you, the one from whom nothing can be hidden, nothing in your heart or mind, nothing from your words, nothing from your past, nothing that you've ever said or done, nothing can be hidden from him. He is the great unveiler, revealer of all that is, and yet you can stand before him fearlessly because you've been forgiven. Because Christ Jesus has taken up your sin for you, and he's put it away. That's the hope of being a Christian. But here's something else. He forgets it. God does something in Christ for our sins that you and I don't have the capacity to do yet. I'm quite convinced in heaven we will. I don't think any of you in heaven are going to be harboring hurt feelings. I don't think any of you in heaven are going to be remembering great offenses sins against you. I think you're going to be set free of that burden. But right now the Bible tells us that God does forget those sins. You've probably heard people say this. You've probably heard this phrase used. That he takes our sins and he throws them into a sea of forgetfulness. How many of you heard that phrase? He throws our sins into a sea of forgetfulness. Well, good. So you actually, before it was introduced to you today, you knew the concept of tashlik because that's where it comes from. That's actually a, that's actually a Jewish concept. But it's founded in the scriptures like Micah, like other passages that talk about what he does with our sins because he is full of loving kindness, because he's full of patience and mercy, because he's full of grace. He puts those sins away and he doesn't bring them up again. He 
according to the New Testament, cancels the record, that contains the charges against us. How many of you in this room have a police record? I didn't think you'd want to raise your hand over that. <laughs> Just want to make sure you're paying attention. Some of you do, I know, I'm sure. You know, here's the thing about a police record, right? Even if you're doing well, it still exists. Now, I know there's a timeline at some point in which that record can be expunged. And, you know, some of you, I, I know your behavior's been better lately, so I know you're working on that. You know, so you get that record cleared. You know, for those of you on parole or probation or whatever, we're glad you're here. Um, and you're working on it. You want that record expunged. But, you know, it doesn't go away exactly. But if you're a Christian, your record against God goes away. That's what that passage tells us. He cancels the record. That contains the charges. He doesn't simply pay the charges and say, but I remember what you did. That's what we do, right? Listen, I'm going to forgive you, but I'm not going to forget what you did, so don't do that again. Man, he forgets. He puts it away. What an awesome thought to think that you and I can be standing right here today, sitting right here today, singing songs to a holy God, praying prayers to a holy God, asking for the intervention, the intercession of a holy God in our lives, knowing that those sins we have confessed to him and repented of, he has forgotten. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. How is that possible? Because he forgives them and he forgets them. But he does more. Because it would be a horrible thing indeed if you and I were forgiven and God had forgotten our sins and yet he left us floundering in them still. You see, that's the beauty of the better model of the New Testament, the better covenant. The better covenant, the New Testament covenant, the covenant in the blood of Christ writes on our hearts something new. It takes the law of God and writes on our hearts. Or as Paul wrote to the Philippians, he changes both our will and our ability to do what pleases God. He changes us from the inside out. What happens is he frees us from sin. That's the power of Christ in us. That's the power of the one-time sacrifice of Christ, that those who are transformed are being set free from sin. If we're bound by sin again, it is by choice. We volunteered for that. That's why Galatians says, don't be ensnared again, don't be entangled again, don't be enslaved again to sin. He frees us from it, which is to say, you can genuinely repent. You don't have to be in the same cycle. You don't have to keep doing what you've done. You can be made new. You have new desires that are God-given. That's the mark of the Holy Spirit in you. It's the mark of genuine conversion that he's changed desires in you. You have new ability within you. That's God's power in you. It's not just yours and yours alone. It's not you striving to be better than you used to be. It's not you tossing some breadcrumbs into the river and saying, this year I'm going to do better. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not a New Year's resolution. It's the power of the Almighty God in you by His Spirit to free you from that. And why is He doing all of that? He's fitting us for heaven. You realize that? God is fitting you for heaven. He's fitting you for that. Taking the old out. Putting the new in transforming us, fitting us for heaven, so that one day, and it's going to come because this passage makes it clear, it is appointed, an appointment that you won't miss, called death. It's appointed unto men once to die and after this judgment. The thickest book, and I say this with no exaggeration, the thickest book I have on my shelf, and I have a fair number of books, is a book about that thick, and it's paperback, and the title of it is The Fear of Death. Honestly, I've never read it because I'm not scared of death. So just, I bought it. It was interesting. I thought, nah, I ain't got to it yet. The fear of death. Apparently, the fear of death is the number one fear listed among people. For a Christian, we can, as John Wesley once said to his brother Charles, we can die well. Our people die well. 
We can die well because we don't have to have a fear of death. Because the fear that you should have of death is not its pain, not its duration, but its result. Because the Bible says it's a point when a man wants to die. That shouldn't be the fearful part. It should be the next part, judgment. That's the scary part. The scary part's not how I go. The scary part is that I go and where I go. And where I go ultimately is before God. And on the day of judgment, when all things are revealed, that is one of two things, and they are to the extreme opposites. The day of the Lord is a day of great fear, a day of trembling, or a day of great joy and a day of great celebration. But it all depends on Christ. It all depends on, am I justified or not? Am I forgiven or not? And so you look at how this passage ends, and I'll bring this to a conclusion. So he says this, verse 28, So Christ, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's a divine countdown in play. Now, I know that for lots and lots of people today, a greatly renewed interest in the end times um, is afoot. And I get it, because the world is crumbling around us. We're seeing morals changing so rapidly. Uh, we're seeing government systems shift in a way we never could have imagined. We're seeing turmoil on a global scale. Uh, we're seeing things that look positively apocalyptic all around us. That I would not deny. On the divine timeline, this is what's next. What's next is the return of Christ. He's done the first part of his divine assignment. He came into this world in his first coming. He came into this world to deal with sin. And he did. He dealt with it. When he finished, what did he say? Well, he said it's finished. He told the Father, what you've sent me to do, I have done, I've accomplished. He promised him that all those that you place in my hand, I will not release from my hand. No one can take them from my hand. Those that you sent me to save, I have procured their salvation. He did the work. He dealt with sin. The penalty for sin was paid. The power of sin destroyed. Death itself conquered. He came and he dealt with sin. When he comes back, he doesn't come back to be sacrificed again. He doesn't come back to be a suffering servant again. He doesn't come back submitting to us again. He comes back as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he comes back to save those who are his. I love talking about salvation in all of its tenses. And Hebrews chapter 9 reminds us of the best tense of our salvation. You see, if you have your sins forgiven, if you are justified, if you've ever come to God through Christ and said, forgive my sins, God, I have sinned against you. And I need to be forgiven. And I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I turn from my old life and I turn to Christ. I've repented and I believe save me, then I would say to you, you have been saved. And because you're a Christian, you now feel the work of God in your life. And I hope that you increasingly feel this tension. This world is not your home. You don't belong here. God is fitting you for something else. He's setting you free from this life, from this world, and setting your affections on heaven. That's what he's doing. He's readying you. He's fitting you for heaven. You are being saved. We call it sanctification. But the best part is yet to come. Jesus is coming back for those who are his. And he's going to save us. He's going to deliver us from this world. He's going to deliver us from this body of death and sin. He's going to deliver us into eternity. We're then finally set free from the presence of sin. Set free from the power of sin. Set free from all that was old. 
We enjoy the new heavens and new earth with him forever. You're going to be saved if you're in Christ. And that belongs to the repentant. So that's what's next up. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for death and judgment? Are you ready for death and judgment? You can be. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to say, I think so. You can be if you're a Christian. Is your sin put away? Has your sin been dealt with definitively by Christ? You can know that for sure. And if you're a Christian today, I ask you this. Are you eagerly awaiting his return? Are you eagerly awaiting for that salvation that has been promised? If so, you can say, with the saints of every century before us, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer. Let's pray today. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our mediator in Jesus. Thank you for our high priest, Jesus. Thank you for our perfect sacrifice, Jesus. Thank you for the one who is the lover of our soul, Jesus. Thank you for the one who forgives us. Thank you for the one who frees us. Thank you for the one who fits us for heaven, Jesus. And now we pray for that final phase of our salvation to come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And while we await, may we do what your word says. May we remain faithful to you. May we remain diligent in your service. May we make you known wherever and however we are able in the time you have allotted for us. May we love you faithfully. May we love one another well. May we care for the, uh, care for the body of believers around us. May we be good ambassadors of the gospel to those in our lives, those you have sent our way. Father, may we share the good news that justification is available through Christ and Christ alone. And now, Father, I pray for those in this room who are believers who need to practice repentance today because we have been forgiven, because we have been set free. We know we've been called to a new life. As your Holy Spirit told Paul to write, how can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? But yet some of us are. We're not living like forgiven people. We're not living like free people. Instead, we're presuming upon your grace over and over. Father, forgive us for that. I pray that real repentance would take place among us, the kind that affects the way we feel and the way that we think and what we do. The kind of repentance that's so real that given the opportunity to go back to that sin, we just don't again because we have turned from it. Father, I believe one of the great themes in Hebrews, underlying so much of it, is this. You want us to enjoy you. You want us to really know you. You want us to approach you, be close to you, experience you. You've got so much for us that we cut ourselves off from. And Father, I know we're never going to have those things that you intend as long as we stay rebellious. Until we're repentant. So Father, move us. And Father, I pray for that person who's not a believer yet, whose sins aren't atoned for yet, whose sins are not put away from your presence yet because they've never come to you in humble repentance. They've never come to you recognizing their need. I, too, am a sinner. God, I need you to forgive my sins. I don't want to stand before you, God, one day with all this guilt. I don't want to stand before you, God, one day with my secrets revealed, with my life exposed. I don't want to try to negotiate with you, God, on the day of judgment, that I'm good enough for heaven when I'm standing before perfect holiness and that's the standard. 
God, forgive me. Give me a new life. Give me a new beginning, not superficial, not short-lived, but make me a new creation in Christ, as your word says. Forgive my sins and change my heart. Put your Holy Spirit in me and make me yours. And begin to fit me for heaven. I pray that someone would call on you like that today. Forgive my sin. Change my life. Fill me with your spirit. Fit me for heaven. I want to follow you, Jesus. And you answer that prayer today and they become yours. And all of these promises of justification and forgiveness become theirs. Sure and certain as Christ is himself. Father, thank you. Man, thank you. You're so good to us. So good to us. We thank you for that today. May we respond rightly to your goodness, to your love. May it lead us to repentance today. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.